This episode of Christmas Past is the second in a three-part series about Santa Claus. And even though children love Santa, these episodes are not for them. Grown-ups, please enjoy them on your own. Thanks. In Act 1 of our story, we met the man himself, the historical Saint Nicholas who lived in the 4th century in present-day Turkey, the protector and miracle worker whose legend spread across Europe with Christianity itself. It's been said that legends are materials to be molded and not facts to be recorded. They grow and morph. They change with the times and the tellers. A legend can often tell you more about the culture that keeps it than it does about the subject of the legend itself. We're about to see several cultures and historical events leave their imprint on the legend of St. Nicholas as we begin Act 2 of our story, A Snowball Rolls Through Europe. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. Our story picks up again around the 12th century, and this is where the idea of bringing gifts in the name of St. Nicholas probably began. Some nuns in central France started leaving gifts and candy for children outside the doors of poor families on the eve of St. Nicholas Day. This was probably inspired by the story of the poor widower and his daughters. The custom of gifts for children, all children, not just poor ones, spread very quickly and even led to St. Nicholas markets in early December where parents could buy toys and candy. As his legend spread across Europe, it became mixed with local folk tales. Christmas is like a snowball. That's author and professor Bruce David Forbes. You might remember him from Act One of our story. And when I say Christmas is like a snowball, I don't mean a snowball that you throw, but a snowball that you roll to make a snowman or a fort. And when you roll the snowball, it picks up things and it gets bigger and it changes size and shape. At this point, St. Nicholas still has nothing to do with Christmas itself. We'll get to that. But nevertheless, we can still see the snowballing effect in action. For example, until the 14th century, St. Nicholas's beard was usually pictured as dark. But his story reminded some people of Odin, the white-bearded Norse god, and legend had it that at the time of the winter solstice, Odin rode across the sky at night on a white horse, and children would leave out carrots and hay for Odin's horse. Sound familiar? So eventually, St. Nicholas was pictured as having a long white beard and riding a white horse. He also began to take on some of the traits of these elfin witch-like characters that show up in some European folk tales, the ones that would reward good children and punish naughty ones. You might remember from Act 1 what Professor Forbes said about Nicholas having three basic roles. One is that he's a protector, kind of a guardian angel. Second, he becomes a disciplinarian, trying to find out if children are naughty or nice. And third, he's a generous gift giver. We're about to see St. Nicholas Day celebrations change, as the emphasis shifts to that of disciplinarian. But punishing children isn't exactly saintly. So, in many regions, he had a servant or a companion who did it for him. For example, Germany had Knecht Ruprecht, a farmhand who carried a rod. They also had Belsnickel, a masked man who carried a threatening tree branch. Krampus was probably the scariest of all. He was found in Austria, and he was sort of a goat demon. These guys and others like them, and there were a lot of other guys like them, all did basically the same thing. They'd give small gifts to children who were well-behaved and threaten the ones who weren't. This snowballing of legends and the morphing of roles are actually tightly coupled. For example, the Dutch had their own tradition surrounding St. Nicholas, or as they called him, Sinterklaas. Sinter, Saint. Klaas is a shortened form of Nicholas. So Sinterklaas, yes, is the phrase that the Dutch would use. 
But Spain conquered the Netherlands in the 16th century and had a lot of influence on the Dutch Catholic Church. Eventually, the Dutch legend of Sinterklaas told that he spent most of the year in Spain, keeping track of children's behavior. Spain itself had a strong Arab influence from its own history, which also trickled into the Sinterklaas legend. Arab Muslims were in control of a major part of Europe, especially Spain, for a long period of time. That influence is there, and so when they were in Spain, the St. Nicholas tradition continued, but he got a sidekick who was called, in, in English, he would be called Black Pete. Black Peter was pictured resembling a Moor, wearing a turban and a gold earring, and sometimes there were several Black Peters. The Black Peter story is the subject of a comic essay by David Sedaris called Six to Eight Black Men. Something else was going on in Europe in the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things the Protestants opposed was devotion to saints, as the Catholics had done. Of course, this would also include St. Nicholas. But he was so popular that a lot of Protestants just wouldn't hear of it. St. Nicholas was so popular, you just couldn't win. And so it was allowed to continue. In other places, you tried to have a substitute. So Germany, which had become Protestant like most of Northern Europe, came up with a plan. Suppose it wasn't St. Nicholas who visited children. Suppose it was the Christ child. And suppose the date of the celebration were moved from December 5th, which was St. Nicholas Day Eve, to Christmas Eve. That way, people could keep some familiar version of their popular celebration, but put the emphasis on the Christ child instead of a saint. And the plan went over terribly. They couldn't get anyone interested. People missed St. Nicholas. And so, back to the drawing board, they came up with a new plan. Now, St. Nicholas and the Christ child would go around together on Christmas Eve. Not every culture did this. Some parts of Europe still have separate St. Nicholas and Christmas celebrations, even to this day. And by the way, in German, the word for Christ child is Christkindl, which, of course, was later mutated into... Christkringle, is that crazy? The snowball rolls on. Sometime during all of this, St. Nicholas also got a fashion makeover. Maybe because the Protestants had a problem with saints, but depictions of him no longer had him wearing a traditional bishop's robes. Instead, he got a fur suit and a matching hat. And perhaps to further disassociate St. Nicholas from his saintly origins, different regions morphed him into a more secular figure. Like, for instance, Germany had a figure called Christmas Man, and in Finland they had Old Man Winter. And in time, England's Father Christmas, who already existed and had nothing to do with Santa Claus, ended up becoming synonymous with him anyway. Within a century of the Reformation, Europeans started crossing the Atlantic and setting up colonies in the New World. And the St. Nicholas tradition came with them. I hope you'll join me for the third and final act of our story, when St. Nicholas, Sinterklaas, finally becomes the Santa Claus we know today. And now, let's hear some Christmas memories from my good friend Hope in Massachusetts. Hope is only 10 years old, and you know that song that says every mother's child is going to spy to see if reindeer really know how to fly? I guess a lot of kids try to do that, and Hope is no exception. Let's hear her tell about that and some of her other favorite Christmas Eve traditions. Um, on Christmas Eve night, I would try to get my mom to um, let me sleep on the couch so I could try to stay up and see Santa. And I was young, so I never made it. 
and I and then in the morning I would just see the tree with the gift around it, and I'd be like, "Man, I missed him." Every single year,、um, my friends used to say that he wasn't real, so I wanted to prove them wrong. Well, I've seen pictures, but then I used to think they were real. But then when I look closely, you can always tell the beard is a little fake. Usually on Christmas Eve, my、um, grandma always has these seven fish, which I eat about two of them usually, and then、um, I go to bed. And we always do presents that night. If you have a Christmas memory you'd like to share, I'd love to share it with everyone else. So record a voice memo into your phone and email it to me at christmaspastpodcast@gmail.com. Try to keep it to about a minute or so, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. And if you're shy about recording your own voice, that's okay. You can also just email me something, and maybe I'll get a chance to read it on the show. Again, that's christmaspastpodcast@gmail.com. Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thank you once again to Dr. Bruce David Forbes, and we'll hear from him again in the next episode. And thanks also to Hope. Merry Christmas, my beautiful mermaid princess. I hope to see you soon. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. I'm on iTunes or however you get your podcast. It takes just a moment and saves you several moments in the long run. You don't have to look for new episodes when they come out because they're delivered right to you. And I've got a bunch more episodes planned for this season. I don't want you to miss a single one. There's more information about subscribing at ChristmasPassPodcast.com. Hey, come on by Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like vintage Christmas stuff and Christmas trivia, well, I'm posting it almost every day. Give me a like or a follow, or just say hi and join the conversation. If you search for Christmas Past podcast in all three places, you'll find me. And also, you can come to my official home on the web, ChristmasPastPodcast.com. For each episode, you'll find show notes,、uh, pictures, recipes, references, and information about the music you hear on the show. Again, that's ChristmasPastPodcast.com.